I became white as a ghost. My legs collapsed, I fell on the floor. And I remember still, I thought I was actually having a heart attack. I thought I was dying. There's nothing wrong with your addiction. There's something wrong with your biochemistry. Living like a king and next thing, you're a crumbling wreck. So it's like 10 hours to the shit house in a matter of a day. My life is basically defined pre and post meditation. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business. But we do it from an immersive but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com well ladies and gentlemen it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to unstoppable today tom cronin how are you tom i'm good mate good to be here mate it's great to have you here now i know um you've you've got an interesting story and uh you know, I recently got your book, um, the portal that was that was sent across to me, and so I've had a bit of a flick through, and I know you've got an interesting story, but um, mate, I know I, I've given you a bit of a, a headline in the in the intro here, but what's the thirty second intro? How do you introduce yourself to people and say when people say so? So what do you do? It is a mixed bag. I'm a meditation teacher, a transformational leadership coach, an author of seven books, a producer of the film The Portal, and retreat host. Yeah, right. Fantastic. And so, mate, I know you've got a, an interesting story, but so where does your where does your life begin in terms of, uh, yeah, what got you to today? Gosh. Apart from the day of birth. <laughs> where does it start for you? At North Sydney Hospital. Um, look, you know, I grew up in a really <laughs> beautiful family environment on a country farm on the outskirts of Sydney, an hour and a half down in Barrel, you know, big family of seven. And it was a very wholesome, beautiful life. I was very passionate about being a journalist and I, at that point in my sort of late teens, was sort of diving into, you know, Susie and the Banshees and the Smiths and reading existential books by Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus and wanting to change the world from capitalistic greed. And I romanticised about travelling the streets of Europe and ended up in Europe at the age of 19. And there I was living the dream of this sort of existential backpacker. And then uh, I came back from all of that with uh, zero money in my bank account and about five months to kill before university started. So I just applied to a bunch of jobs in the paper. They will Saturday Morning Herald here in Sydney. And um, lo and behold, I, I landed a job on a trading room floor in, on January the 1st, 1987. And it was quite an auspicious time. It was actually the year that we gave birth to Gordon Gecko and Bud Fox from Wall Street. It was the year that Sherman McCoy from Bonfather Vanities was born, Master of the Universe. What year was it? 1987. It was a big year. Yeah. Yep, Markets was. were going yeah. crazy. So we had greed is good, lunches for wimps. Um, and Sherman McCoy, Bonfire of the Vanities, book was written, and he was a master of the universe, the bomb broker extraordinaire. And uh, it was also the year that Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street, started his career as a broker. He was 22 mm. and I was 19. So, yeah, right. you know, I was there for four or five months and I was just going to go and do a degree in journalism at Macquarie University. But Quickly, my sort of uh, probation period came around. They gave me a big bonus and a pay rise. And I'm like, 
I'll just screw uni for another year and I'll come back to that next year. And every year I just kept performing better and better at my job. I was a bit of a hot shot back then at the age of 19, 20. Um, and I had no interest in the industry. I had really zero interest in, in that. But before long, I'm just swept along. They gave me a fancy sports car, a corporate Amex card, six-figure salary at the age of 20. And I was like, I'm all in. <laughs> and so yeah, right. that was like a pivotal turning point. You know, you're just so swept up by the excitement, the glamour, the the grandeur and the wealth that was coming at that time. So all of my sort of dreams of writing articles for Time magazine to save the world from capitalistic greed that suddenly got swept by the wayside as I got pulled into the finance <laughs> industry. <laughs> Couldn't have been two more extremes. And so before long, I'm dealing drugs in the toilet and doing cocaine and staying up till four in the morning and having three hours sleep and, you know, writing tons of business and, becoming an incredibly successful broker and swept along by the whole industry and the culture of that world in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, this is pre-HR and anything went. It was kind of like the wild west of the finance world. So it was pretty um, fascinating times. That's kind of like the sort of early stages of that career. And then in um, 1996, everything went to pot. I uh, really, things went pretty rapidly downhill for me. Uh, I, so that you you were in the you were in the system for that long. You lasted almost ten years. Well, interestingly, we'll get. I'll, I'll, I'll go to the full end of the story. I was in the industry for twenty six years as a broker, but at wow. nineteen ninety six, I'd been in there for nine years, and uh, in that time, partly because of the nature of the job, partly because the choices that I was making in the job, which was you know doing lots of drugs and drinking, not everyone was doing that, but. Also, on top of that, on the weekends, it was kind of like the early stages of the rave culture, uh, the summer yeah, of Love right. 89, and I got really swept yeah. into that. You know, I loved the rave okay. culture. So weekends when I was supposed to be recovering from five days of hell, uh, I was actually in warehouse parties till 7 in the morning and then recovery parties all day Sunday doing ecstasy. So um, my nervous system- And then rocking up and backing up at work on Monday. That's right. Yeah, yeah, literally. Yeah. So my nervous system never took a break. And the interesting thing with our nervous system, our mind, is it's a fascinating piece of equipment that needs to be treated with the utmost respect because it is quite fragile. And um, by that stage, I was suffering from extreme symptoms of wear and tear on that nervous system, a lot of anxiety, panic attacks, yeah. depression, insomnia. It was really starting to deteriorate quite rapidly and it went downhill very fast until one very balmy summer's morning in February 1996, uh, literally was diagnosed uh, with having a nervous breakdown in an uncontrollable wreck, seeing psychiatrists yeah, right. and doctors. And uh, when was that? What year was that? 1996, February 1996. Yeah, right. Okay. And at this point, I, I, I'm going to assume from what the story you've told, you've developed issues with alcohol and drugs. Yeah, the whole thing. You know, it's like anything yeah. that could. You know, for me, it was like not just. Uh, stress release, but it was just excitement. It was fun. You know, it was just, you got a ton of money, you're young and having lots of money being young and having no consciousness is not a good formula. <laughs> but I'm curious to know though, what, what, where, where that came from? Cause I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure with, with your own experience, you've probably come to be aware that you were, you know, maybe trying to numb something or cover something up. Uh, cause it's not always necessarily the introduction of great wealth that makes people go off the rails. Like, was there something you were running away from at that point in your life? You know, it's interesting, you know, that it wasn't that at all. You know, it was actually being pulled into the excitement and it was just purely decadence of being pulled yeah, right. into the, so the problem, if you look at it on a sort of scientific biochemical level and biological level, 
when you're in a state of stress, which is the nature of the job, it puts you into a state of fight flight, which is sympathetic nervous system response. So when you're in sympathetic nervous system response, you have got high levels of cortisol and adrenaline and norepinephrine pumping through your veins. You've got a huge contraction in the production of melatonin, serotonin and oxytocin. So what happens is your system's not producing the biochemicals to make you feel happy. So what you mm. do is you go looking for places that you can get the happiness. Um, and so you start looking into places like nightclubs and drugs and drinking because that makes you feel happy. But then what happens is it enhances and self-perpetuates more of the sympathetic nervous system response, which means that you're going to have even less biochemicals that are going to make you happy, which is serotonin, oxytocin, and melatonin. So then you have to go back for more of that. So that's what addiction is. All addiction mm. basically craving the experience of elevation that you're getting from some activity or experience. Um, what we want to do is obviously just simply get out of the sympathetic nervous system state, bring in the parasympathetic nervous system state and start producing those biochemicals naturally yourself without looking for a high. Uh, so, so what was the moment where it, all, where it all came undone for you and you, and you realised you had some big work to do? Uh, it was that morning in February 96, I went to the bathroom to get ready for work. Now, at that point, there'd been an, an accumulation of months and years of these stress symptoms showing up in my body, but just ignoring them and continuing on with the same process. And then that morning I went to the bathroom to get ready for work and I remembered while I was looking in the mirror shaving that I had a massive client lunch that day with six senior traders at a large investment bank and that I was going to get stuck in that very fancy restaurant's area and I was going to get stuck in that restaurant. I couldn't get out. I'm going to be trapped. What if those, those waves of fear come in? What if I get one of those panic attacks? And then all of a sudden this snowball and this cascade of fear on fear on fear just rippled through my body. And at that point what happened was my vision blurred I couldn't breathe. I felt like a knife had just been shot through into my heart. I had this pain in my chest. Um, I had this cold, clammy sweat, like flu-like symptoms just swept across my body. I became white as a ghost and I had this fever and I my legs collapsed. I fell on the floor and I remember still looking at the bathroom tiles while I was lying there on the, the cold surface and I was curled up in a ball. I thought I was actually having a heart attack. I thought I was dying. And to be honest with you, I, I didn't really care. I, I'd completely lost hope. I'd given up. I was just so over that darkness. So I was really living a quite a dark experience at that point in my life. And that's when uh, my, my wife or my partner at the time came and uh, she picked me up and uh, she took me down to the doctors. And I remember literally, you know, literally half an hour after that all happened, I'm sitting in the doctor's uh, clinic and he explained to me that I was having a nervous breakdown, literally in his words. And at that point, I just lost it. I just, I remember just sitting there. I remember the room distinctly. This is going back 25 years now. And I just couldn't stop crying. I was just crying and crying. And I just had become this wreck. Like I just completely lost the entire identity of who I thought I was. Mm. And so what happens next? Well, he, he sent me immediately to a clinic in Bronte, which is a psychiatry clinic. Um, mental health clinic and it's like one of the top clinics where all the celebrities and rich people go I didn't have a clue where I was going what I was doing he, he said I booked you into this place and I remember this experience very vividly uh, I was really really anxious at this point uh, completely demoralized and I remember walking into his room and this was a 65 odd oddish sort of guy plaques all across his wall telling 
you know, the world how talented he is in the era of the mind and psychology, psychiatry. And he explained to me that I have a stressful disposition that I need to go on pharmaceutical drugs. So, you know. In and what the did they try and put you on? I was put on Zoloft. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, and uh, so that was a really demoralizing day for me. It was like a crushing blow where one doctor told me that I'm having a nervous breakdown and the next psychiatrist told me that my nature is that I'm a stressful person and I need yeah, to be wow. dependent on drugs. So, you know, I was I was really crushed at that point. I developed agoraphobia, How? so I couldn't go to work. Ooh. So I'm curious to know, in contrast, like up until that moment when everything started to come down, I'm going to assume there was a little bit of a, there was a few breadcrumbs. But what was the shift in identity from where you were to that moment? Like, what was the contrast? Yeah, you know, you're master of the universe, you know, you're king of the island, you know, you, you the world's your oyster, you got making a ton of money, you're doing lines of coke, you're partying all night long in expensive wine bars, nightclubs, restaurants, you're living like a king and next thing you're a crumbling wreck in a doctor's clinic and he's telling you a nervous breakdown. Mm. So it's like penthouse to the shithouse in a matter of a day. Yeah, right. And that in itself, I'm going to assume, like, created its own momentum in terms of the, the obviously, the, the, the situation you're already in. Yeah, what had happened was, uh, this was remembering 1996, so, you know, there's no internet, no YouTube, nothing. So I'm in basically a state of homestay. I had to had take leave of work at that point, so I'm at home and I was watching TV a lot because there's nothing else to do. And... um I was watching a documentary about a property developer, Bruno Grollo, big guy in the 80s and 90s doing a lot of high-rise property development. It was just a documentary and um, there was a slither in that story of how he used meditation and it was actually transcendental meditation. I remember him talking mm-hmm. about that. He used transcendental meditation. That word, what happened was he was, he was talking in the voiceover and they showed him sitting in a chair in a suit meditating. And he's sitting in a chair in a suit meditating and he's talking about this word transcendental meditation. And what happened was there was something in the word transcendental because I was looking, I was doing a lot of drugs at that time, yeah, particularly right. ecstasy. And why I wanted to do those was to get out of the state that I was in. That's the whole point, mm. to transcend the state. And something sort of triggered my curiosity when they said transcendental meditation. It's like going from somewhere to somewhere. And that really brought a lot of the, the attention to my mind. And so at that point, I, I opened up the yellow pages. I remember distinctly getting the yellow pages out, putting it on the coffee table and looking up meditation and seeing it was actually written in red in the yellow pages. There's young people probably wouldn't have a clue what I'm talking about here. The yellow pages are telephone directory <laughs> for visitors. <laughs> they might be back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's when I rang them up and said, look, I, I want to find out about what you guys do. That was the start of my journey into meditation, mindfulness, and spirituality. So, at that point, you'd never you'd never been introduced to mindfulness. Not once, never. And it so, was, it was, was ninety six. So it wasn't you know, it's not like apps and corporate yeah. meditation programs, and wasn't it even hardly any yoga studios at that point in time. Yeah, and so I'm going to assume with everything that's going on at work, you you've left the trading floor at this point. Yeah, I I, I basically took a leave of absence. I had to take some time off, mental health break. Uh, and then I started to meditate and my life was basically defined pre and post meditation. That was, it was, it was so de- definitive of how different it made me feel. I went back to work and I sat in the same chair, picked up the same phone, talked to the same clients, same company for 16 more years after that with the same company, yep. the same clients, the same phone. Oh, you same did? 
Yeah. Wow. Okay. And you managed to regulate through that and you continued the mindfulness journey through that? Yeah. You know, I, I just completely changed my life. You know, I, I started meditating. What that did was that it changed my own biochemicals very quickly. I started yeah. producing melatonin, serotonin, oxytocin. And because I started to feel naturally internally better about who I was and I just had better biochemicals, I was sleeping better, the yearning and the craving for that lifestyle just simply melted away. And this is how I deal wow. with a lot of clients that have got addictions is that there's mm. nothing wrong with your addiction. There's something wrong with your biochemistry. And that's what we want to mm. look at changing because when you start producing the serotonin and the oxytocin and the melatonin, the craving for that from that place of lack just doesn't exist anymore. Not as much anyway. And so how did you go from then another 16 years in the final financial markets to then becoming um, your, your very own version of a meditation teacher? Yeah, you know, over time, you know, I just used meditation as a tool to help me get through, you know, daily stresses and it just became more and more of an impact. And, Can I ask uh, a question before we go there? What what kind of an impact did it have on your performance? Like when you obviously as a financial trader, um, you know, I've worked with traders before. I know emotional stability, emotional regulation, objectivity yeah. is super important, being able to stay meta. So I'm going to assume there was a natural consequence that flowed on into your trading. Yeah, I was a broker. So less on trading, I was executing for traders. Um, traders gotcha. would do their deals through me. Um, so I spoke okay. to some of the major banks, investment banks and domestic banks uh, on the swap, swap and bond markets, the inflation swaps and bonds. So, you know, we'd be turning over some days a billion dollars worth of, uh, you know, turnover. And so it was about being really efficient, really sharp, but also being able to be in a state that you developed really good rapport with your clients, the sense mm. of trust. And um, So you, when, really when you started helped. meditating, your addiction naturally started to melt away. Like what, what other benefits did you see start to creep in over time? I think the main thing first and foremost was I, I started sleeping. It was mind-blowing. I had the worst insomnia. How good is the sleep? Oh, my goodness. So sleep yeah. was just such a refreshing experience. And then because yeah. I was sleeping better, I felt healthy. And I, because I felt healthy, I started training and working out and just everything. You know, I, I started reading more conscious books and gravitating towards more conscious experiences in life. Instead of, did you, know, you find that your choice in movies even started to change? Like, did you go from perhaps being, you know, more action horror, distraction into I don't know rom com? Like, <laughs> rom coms. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm finding myself like when the more the more plant medicine I do, yeah. um, the the less violent films I actually want to watch. And I do a lot of meditation as well. I do at least a couple of hours a day. But I'm I'm finding it's shifting now. Yeah, absolutely. And it's all about congruency and alignment. You know, vibrationary mm. alignment as you change your energetic state you naturally gravitate toward things that are of like, you know, vibration. And so for me, I just couldn't possibly watch a horror film or um, I think yeah. a big thing on Netflix at the moment about that tiger guy. I mean, I just, it, I looked at the trailer oh and God, I could I feel the vibration of that. It was oh like terrible. Oh, God. Yeah, literally. It was like I'd rather watch the Kardashians. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And so what led you to then, I'm going to assume the next 16 years that we're going to be quite successful um, as a broker, um, especially working at that level that, that you were already at. But I'm going to assume, did you reach a level of financial security, independence? What was the shift? You obviously hit a point after 16 years, still in finance, still in mindfulness, that you went, you know what, I'm going to go all in on the mindfulness. Yeah, it was actually a strong calling that really was just pulling me into serve and to be of greater relevance in the world. And it just became more and more, you know, over time what was happening was I was referring a lot of my friends and colleagues and friend and family to friends of mine that were meditation teachers and some you, you'd know, Gary Goro and people like that. Oh, and yeah. um, 
So I was like, you know, hey, you should go and see this guy. He's a meditation teacher. You should see this guy or this woman. She's a meditation teacher. And eventually I thought, damn it, I just got to learn how to become one. So I studied with Gary and Tom Knowles and became a meditation teacher and started teaching part-time. I was still a broker, but I just figured I really just felt so strong and passionate about meditation that I, I wanted to share that with the world. So I started teaching after I'd finished on the trading room floor at 5.30 and start teaching people to meditate at 6 o'clock in a studio in the city. Um, That's fucking amazing. Yeah. Is that Surrey Hills? Uh, no, I had Hills? a little spot that I was subleasing off some naturopaths in, um, on York Street in the city. Yeah, okay. So they'd finish their you know, naturopathic consultancies at 6 and I'd swap over and just use the room to teach people to meditate in. And so... When did you exit the finance market? Yeah, so it was in 2012. Uh, what had happened was that over time I just got bitten by the bug and I couldn't shake it that I really knew deep down that teaching meditation was something so that I came alive. I was getting more and more numb and more and more, uh, to be honest with you, kind of depressed. Even though I was a meditation student yeah, and I teacher, it. I was kind of getting, the universe was sort of saying, we're going to make this miserable for you if you stay here. Was it, de- de- was it depressed or more you were realizing consciously the malalignment? Misalignment, the misalignment. yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah, for sure. You know, there was a, such a strong incongruency with me staying in that job and, and, and mm. as I went further into my studies and did a lot more advanced uh, Vedic studies, it would just became stronger and stronger calling. So at that point, I was working with some people to sort of really look at a framework that would help me make that transition out of broking into finance. Now, you know, we'd, I was living in a massive house that we'd built in Rose Bay overlooking the harbour and, you know, it was a difficult transition um, for anyone listening that's considering making a life purpose type move. <laughs> the move from it's big not, end finance to it's meditation It's not teacher. easy. So, you know, it, we, we ended up selling the house and, um, you know, there's polarity and everything, you know, we had some a fair bit of debt on that and going into being a meditation teacher wasn't the most financially, um, you know, fruitful experience, but it definitely was a liberating experience to be doing something that I was really passionate about. And, you know, obviously we diversified the model with retreats and coaching and, um, and some online offerings as well. So it was really looking to scale that model and bring meditation into the masses in a bigger way. Right. Model so you, you you actually started looking at the model of meditation. Yeah. So you weren't just going to be like, I'm just going to be a, a fluffy, airy, fairy meditation teacher. You started looking at the commercial aspects. Yeah, two two things I wanted to look at. One was global reach. I really felt that there was yeah. a world out there of people that were looking to get their hands on this tool or tools to help their life. And I just didn't want to exclude anyone from that possibility of touching their lives. And secondly, to look at a business model that would sustain me doing this full time, you know, I had a wife and kids and wanted to live in Sydney, which obviously anyone that lives in Sydney knows is going to need some money. So, um, yeah, it had to have some substance to it. So, we looked at diversification in online programs, retreats, coaching, corporate speaking gigs, books, and really giving that model a little bit more depth to it to, um, mm. to sustain some sort of financial capacity. And so, at what point, what inspired the movie, mate? Yeah, the movie was kind of hot on the back of The Secret and, you know, The Secret came out and took a very esoteric subject matter which was, gosh, the law of attraction and put it into the households of the world. It was phenomenal and they were one mm. of the first films in that genre of self-help films to really, you know, kick it out of the park. And so um, we kind of, I felt that there was the potential to do that around meditation, to, to do something like that. So um, I teamed up with uh, some amazing people in the film industry and brought together a really great team of filmmakers to see that vision come to life and to show through personal story the power of meditation. 
And that's and called was, the portal, yeah? Yeah, that's the portal. So on the back of the and film, you, we built the book. The book was extracted out of the film interviews. Okay. And when did you guys launch that? Well, the film was launched in the cinemas last year in October. Um, we're about to go digital now, but we did a cinema run in Australia and New Zealand and the USA. We did a sort of 25-city tour of the USA doing Q&A. Really? How'd you go? Yeah, it was amazing. Was it received well? Yeah, yeah, very well. It's an interesting film. It polarizes people. Um, It's interesting, you know, we get 10 out of 10s or, you know, some people just really struggle with it. So I won't, you know, um, dress it up for what it's not. You know, some people are absolutely blown away by it. And we have people in the audiences crying, standing ovations, and some other people just really don't resonate with it. So, and I totally respect both sides of that perspective. No, I'm looking forward to getting my. I've even said to the guys, we're going to do a video night here. Yeah, fantastic. Um, with no more than two people, um, <laughs> 1.5 meters apart. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so, how I'm going to assume, based on what's going on right now with COVID, um, you don't need to pivot. You've you're already in the digital space. Um, look out! You know, 50% of our business model was on live events, so we have uh, okay. big, big events we we run around Australia. Um, obviously, weekend workshops, which we had to shut down. Our retreats, our Bali retreat, we had to cancel. So, 50% of the business model was on being in-person experiences, and then the other 50% is digital coaching, which is one-on-ones and group coaching, and that's right. going really, really well at the moment. So, um, you know, we've got a model that can stand the test of time and weather the storms when they come. So, and that's what I coach my clients a lot on is, you know, to have a very diversified business model. And like you, um, Cohen, just before we get, went live, you know, talking about adapting and, de- and, and pivoting based upon a, a wind change. You know, if you look at a good sailor, they've got this ability to almost see before, and you, you were talking about how mm. you could see it coming quite early on. And my dad as a sailor taught me to look ahead of the uh, the boat in the water and see whether there's a squall or a wind change by the way the water's rippling and so that you're kind of ready to tact before you even need to tact and then when it mm. comes you're ready to change it quick, quite quickly and that's a really good sign of a good business operator I think. And it's interesting how meditation adds to that because I'm, I'm a big proponent of meditation for the consequence of consciousness. And when you think about what, what you're talking about, that's that contingent mindset, being able to see something and then just contingently think in parallel with what they're doing of what's got to happen next. And I've found that the more I indulge in meditation and, yeah, the, the practice and the, the act of just practicing consciousness – the more able I am to, to drop into multiple contingencies so fast and so rapidly that ultimately, yeah, give nothing but a, a, a massive options and potential, which in reality, I guess that's what, you know, consciousness really is. Potential. Yeah, there's a great um, saying, a rishi takes a hint and a rishi is like a, a sage or a seer, one that can sort of, is very wise and a hint meaning that they don't need cataclysmic events before they start adapting. Mm. And I think, yeah. you know, looking at where the world's at mm. right now, and this is what the portal was kind of, it was an impulse I had around the creation of this project, um, around a potential, we call it a Rashi in Sanskrit, which is a cataclysmic event as a force of evolution to disrupt the current status quo that's unsustainable. And the film was inspired by this idea of an impending Rashi. I could see one coming on the horizon because of the, trajectory that humanity was on and we looked at four potential scenarios for that rashi which we cover in the film in a book which was ai going wrong environmental rashi which was what we were kind of seeing glimpses into uh with the bushfires and everything um we were looking at a nuclear rashi 
or we're looking at an economic rashi. Interestingly, we didn't forecast a pandemic rashi, but Bill Gates I know did five years ago with his TED talk. So um, it was one of the rashis that we didn't consider, but here we are now in the middle of a rashi. And a rashi is part of a force of nature to inspire change when the process of change has become resistant. Mm, I like that a lot. And I wouldn't be surprised if this rashi is going to be provoking yeah, yep. the AI. The the yeah. It's, It'll it's, be interesting to think. It's inspiring change already, you know, it's really exciting. Oh, massive change. Yeah. And it's interesting because you're like from what I can tell, like you're interested not just in developmental side with with um with big people. You've also written a kid's book, Missy Moon Meditates. Uh, spirit of the soul exploring the seven states of consciousness and more so what was the what was the seed behind that where did that come from oh look you know i love working with kids you know i just see there's such i I don't do a lot of work with kids these days now it was early days you know are you a parent yeah i've got two 17 year olds twins boy and a girl oh wow oh wow yeah nailed it so they're great (laughs) amazing amazing inspiring human beings in my life so yeah they're beautiful beautiful souls um, but yeah, kids are interesting. You know, a lot of people ask me why I don't do more work with kids. And the thing with kids is that they're all kind of quite in tune with things. You know, they're very intuitive, particularly the kids coming through these days. They sort of think a little, a lot differently than what we used to. We used to think very much individually about our own personal gains, whereas kids these days really think about the collective. And you just look at people like Greta Thunberg. And for instance, I walked into my house not long ago when we we're in the middle of the drought in summer. And I came back from Bondi Beach and I walked into the house, you know, my towel around me, dripping with water. And I said, guys, it is the most perfect, perfect day out there. You've got to get out there. And my son looked at me and he says, it's not a perfect day, Dad. He says, we're in the middle of a drought. If it was perfect, it would be raining. And they just <laughs> think differently. Like he wasn't trying to pull me up. Yeah. It's the way they think, you know. So the yeah. problem isn't children. The problem is adults. And I'd much rather work with where the problem is in the lack of yeah, consciousness agree in more. the adult generation. Kids, they, they just want to get inspired by inspired adults. And at the moment, we don't mm. have, we have some amazingly inspiring adults in the world, but we have a lot of adults that aren't that inspiring at the moment. So one question a lot of people ask is like, what actually happens when we meditate? And so you, you seem to have a bit of a handle on the, the biochemistry and the neurochemistry of what's going on. Uh, and then the, 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 the short term, medium term and the long term impacts of what happens to the brain, its processes, and also its structure. So why don't you give us a little bit of a, you know, a science kind of, you know, 101 walkthrough of when you start meditating, what are some of the changes that we see structurally, uh, neurologically, and also maybe neuro and biologically that create these short, medium, and long-term impacts? And what, and what are they? Yeah, I usually like to break it down uh, in three components. That's physical, mental, and emotional. So firstly, on a physical level, what starts to happen when you meditate is you very quickly move out of a sympathetic nervous system response, which is think of S, sympathetic for stress, the stress response. Mm -hmm. We just want to clarify right here that there are no stressful situations in life. There are situations in life and then there's a stress response to that situation or not and that's the variability is the objective and subjective uh, relationship that's happening there um, to that experience. And so... When we have a stress response to a situation, then we go into fight flight or the sympathetic nervous system state. And on a physiological level, what happens is we get cortisol pumping, uh, we get, sorry, our our blood starts to coagulate, our breathing starts to change, we start storing fat cells because we might not be able to eat for a while, 
Um, we uh, shut down our digestive system. All this sort of stuff is happening on a physiological level in a nanosecond. Now, when we, uh, on a mental level, when we go into the sympathetic nervous system state, we've got right and left hemisphere of the brain, which is analytical and creative. We also have frontal lobe and rear lobe of the brain. Now, the frontal lobe of the brain is this big forehead that we've got as Homo sapiens, which was the distinguishing factor between us and the other Homo species. Sapien means wise one. And that's because we developed this frontal lobe that's very intuitive, it's cognizant, it's wise, it's creative. And the other Homo species didn't develop that. Um, what we also have in uh, similar to the other Homo species was this reptilian part of the brain, which is very survival type instincts. And when we're in the stress response state, what happens is this frontal lobe contracts and we start getting very limited functionality out of our brain. And we switch to very primal reptilian brain functionality, which is just survival. Um, and so that's why some of the top companies in the world know that for them to succeed, they need that frontal lobe of the brain of their employees to be operating very highly. So they introduce meditation programs to help them stay in that state of parasympathetic nervous system state. And then on the energetic or emotional level or biochemical level, it's all the same thing. Your emotions are biochemicals that are pumping through your veins. What happens is when we are in the sympathetic nervous system state, we're producing high levels of cortisol and adrenaline. And you can't coexist with cortisol and adrenaline and serotonin and melatonin or oxytocin. For a reason, your body wants you to survive. Your body's primary intelligence, forget you and your desires, your body's primary intelligence is to survive. And so it will trump anything that you're doing if it feels it's in danger. And so if it feels it's in danger, what it does is it doesn't want you falling asleep, so it won't produce melatonin. If it feels it's in danger, it doesn't want you feeling happy and laughing and cracking jokes with an enemy. If you're about to go in a battlefield like Braveheart and start to put a sword in someone's side, to survive in that threat, we don't want you feeling compassion and empathy and love for someone, so you won't produce oxytocin. You look at US Marines when they're going into battle, the last thing they want is those guys feeling love. <laughs> so if yeah. we're at home with family, relationships, trying to exist and we're still in the sympathetic nervous system state at the end of the day, then you're going to go into an experience in a house that requires love. You simply won't have the biochemistry to enable you mm. to function in that dynamic. So what we have in the world is not a lot of problems with our relationships. We have a lot of problem with people being in the sympathetic nervous system state. And that was my mission and vision was to just simply give them the tools and the techniques to quickly get them out of that state and very quickly within literally a 15, 20-minute meditation, you can change your whole biochemistry, brain functionality, and physiology. And, you know, you would have experienced it yourself. A lot of meditators experience it. They'll sit down and start meditating, and they'll start getting all these incredible ideas for books or films or apps or marketing plans. It's like I'm trying to meditate here, but all these creative impulses because your brain's completely opening up in that frontal lobe, and you're getting a fully coherent brain state. So what's happening in that brain state? Like what's happening electro uh, uh, at, the, at an electrochemical level? Yeah. What's the what's the change in the way that the brain is communicating when we do drop into those those deeper states? Sure. So when we meditate, uh, particularly and why is it compared to psychedelic experiences yeah, depending on the depth of meditation? Yeah, I'll talk about what happens with the brain when we meditate. I'm I, I'm aware of psychedelics, but I'm not too in depth familiar with all of the mechanics of it so I, I won't profess to be a skilled um, person of knowledge in that area <clears throat> but when we go into transcendent experiences in meditation that's what we call samadhi or where the mind is 
awake and conscious, but there's no thinking going on, no neurological activity. So when we're thinking, we're thinking from one really small portion of the brain and you can just Google images brain thinking state or something. You'll see like little bits of the brain being lit up depending on the nature of the thought and where the thought's coming from. But when we're in a state where there's no thinking yet the brain is awake and it's conscious, that is, it's not in an unconscious sleep state or in an active thinking process of dream state where, again, we're back to the one area of the brain that's being used, there's a total cohesiveness and coherence in the brain functionality. And some meditators, and you may have experienced this, um, where there's kind of like a pressure in the brain because that's Mm -hmm. a muscle. Like any muscle that's being used, it's being flexed, and the muscle pushes against the skull. It's actually expanding. And we're now seeing scientific studies coming out where they didn't think that grey matter, the cells in the brain, could actually regenerate. And now they're realising, particularly through the meditation process, that they can actually regenerate brain cells as they start to reproduce again. It's so interesting because I had a stroke back in 2009 and I had a two-plus centimetre lesion in my brain uh, as a result of um, that incredible experience. And then in November last year, I had another doctor that wanted to have a look at the lesion and just, you know, basically assess it. Ten years later, completely gone, no trace whatsoever. The doctor who was inquiring, he almost lost his mind. He was old school. So he was like, do you have any idea what this means? (laughs) This is impossible. I need to write about this. I need to create articles about this. Uh He was quite, you know, legitimately blown away. But that that in itself is quite interesting because – I've known myself for a while that, you know, neurological tissue can reproduce, you know, and it can, you know, but it's still to this day, there are people who are in the profession that it's just like, it's still a, a theoretical concept mm. for some people, um, which is, which is really quite interesting. Um, and so when we look at the brain structure long-term, so what you're saying is over time, the more we meditate, the more we exercise the brain, the, the heavier the brain is going to become and the more dense those neural connections will be. And the more frequently those neural connections will start to to communicate towards one another, which I guess in many respects is where you'd compare that to the psychedelic experience. Because what you're telling me is when the brain's in a, a state of harmony, it's in a state of coherence, it's it's effect- effectively actively multi-ordinately communicating with other centers in the brain simultaneously. Is that correct? Yeah, you're getting coherent. So it's all working together more effectively. It's all working together, yep. much like when in a psychedelic state, and that's what we see from the scans in a psychedelic state, the brain is communicating, you know, more coherently and more effectively. And that's where we get those ideas and, um, you know, some of those incredibly um, vivid uh, visions that we might see as well. And so I've, I've personally just found a really interesting correlation. The more, I, more work I do with plant medicine, the deeper my meditation goes and the more meditation I do, the more able I am to navigate in my psychedelic um, experiences. So I've found it to be a really, really interesting parallel between the two. Amazing. Awesome. Yeah, I th- I, it's not often I hear of people merging those two practices together and um, I've got a deep respect for the plant-based medicine path um, mm. and to unify, I think, with the sustainable spiritual practice of going into meditation, I think they can work really potently together. I think oh, um, without one, without, uh, you know, this, the plant base, without, I think, that regularity of the, the meditation component to deepen that experience and sustain that experience, mm. I think could possibly leave it a bit short. But it's great that you're bringing those two together. I think that's a very powerful uh, experience. Yeah, no, it has been. It's been incredible. And so, mate, so where, what's next for Tom? Like, where, where to from here? Mate, I want to be your neighbor. 
I'm, I'm done. I'm ready. I've done my hard work. <laughs> Come on up, mate. There's yeah, plenty I'm of room. Far off it. I'm not far off it. Um, look, I'm really. I've spent the last seven years, and I'll be really transparent. It's been it's been pretty grinding and grueling. Um, books, films, online programs. Uh, they're all big projects. Um, I'm really yep. enjoying getting into coaching and back to teaching. A lot of those things that are really more intimately involved with humanity. Um, rather than big scale projects, I'm really enjoying getting back to the grassroots of the stuff that I, I think I'm good at and B, that I'm, I enjoy doing. So I'm focusing a lot more on my coaching uh, and looking at more event style um, experiences, which will be, we're going to be planned in a big way this year before coronavirus, but we'll be doing them definitely in 2020. Uh, a lot more retreats. We've got Greece, Bali and Byron Bay all next year for retreats and a Byron Bay retreat later this year up in Tallows, just in your neck of the woods. So, um, yeah, that's really the, the big – and bringing the film and the, the book out into the world again, you know, th- all through the digital space um, this year and next year as well. So, very excited about that. So, mate, there is another question I meant to ask you, um, mm-hmm. which is one that I get a lot, and I've got my answer for it, but I'm really curious as to your answer. You know, one, one thing I get from people a lot is they go, Kerwin, I've tried to meditate 100 times. I just can't. Uh, and so when someone says that to you, and I guess it's more of a statement that it is a question, but but what do you say to people who say that they can't meditate? And how do you frame it in a way that opens people's mind to the process of the fact that not knowing how to meditate is in fact the process of learning how to meditate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it comes down to a number of factors. It depends on the technique that they're doing uh, because some meditation techniques are just simply harder than others. It comes down mm. to what their training's been. Did you just try and wing it on your own or did you actually have a proper trained meditation teacher take you through an actual course Mm. to instruct you fully in the art of meditation uh that's always my highest recommendation Uh, you know it's not like we try and pull our teeth out ourselves or do a filling with some potty mix um you know you go to a dentist who's trained in the art of fixing teeth so when you're dealing with something like the mind and meditation ideally put yourself in the hands of a qualified teacher first and foremost um but look there's a lot of shortcuts people can get on apps these days and they can wing it they can get on youtube so um yeah it's just a matter of um really i'm curious uh, i'm curious as your perspective on on apps and and guided stuff like i i i use them as a good gateway as a good introduction to um but my preference is is really the i guess and i'm not sure if i'm being elitist but or purist in the terms of you know meditations in nature where you're actually just connecting to mother like what's 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 how do you look at the the app space and the guided space yeah look i mean we've got an app enter the portal i've got an online program called faster deeper bliss which is a 21 day meditation program based on sort of vedic meditation principles um i think it's kind of like coming in like you said to the level you want to come in at you know when people ask me how mm. should i start to meditate i say look just go to the top go to the rolls royce and do a 10-day Vipassana or do a Vedic meditation course or Transcendental Meditation course or, you know, go to a very engaged and involved process of learning that art and there's no right or wrong technique. There's one I prefer, the one I recommend based upon my own personal experience, but that's not to say that that's the only or the best technique. Um, I know a lot of sort of spiritual elitism out there about my technique's the best. That's not the case for me. <laughs> do your shopping around and find one that resonates with you, yeah. one that you can embrace on a daily basis, one that you kind of makes it's your heart come so alive. True. So, you know, yeah, meditation like martial arts. I remember Bruce Lee was asked a question in an interview, I think it was in 1974 before he died, or 73, actually it was 72, and they said, what is the best martial art? Who's the best martial art? What's the best martial arts in the world? And he said, 
there is no ultimate martial art. There is the only the, the ultimate martial artist, and the ultimate martial artist is the is the artist that takes from every single discipline and style and blends it together in his own formless expression of, you know, mm, what yeah. what that is. And I remember at the time, like I hung on to that, yeah, um, yeah. through my through my life, and because it's interesting, because I remember when I first got into meditation, I grew up in a very spirit. Uh, I guess you could say a, a deeply uh, religious slash spiritual home. So we were introduced to concepts around prayer and meditation quite early. But I remember, you know, being introduced to heavier concepts in around meditation in Alpha Dynamics when I was about, you know, 13, 14. But I did uh, Vipassana for the first time. I think I was about 25. Mm -hmm. And I ended up doing Vipassana like half a dozen times. And wow. I call that full contact <laughs> <Yeah>. meditation. Because <laughs> for those of you I'd playing call. at home, Vipassana that you're taking, they say it's a 10 days. It's actually 11. When you really factor it, it's actually 11 days, uh, 10 nights, 11 days. And they, you take a vow of silence. They separate the men and the women. You can't look at one another. You can't talk to one another. You, you can't engage. You basically, you know, you sleep by yourself. You meditate by yourself. You eat by yourself, although there are other people in the same room. And, um, yeah, I didn't realize after the first day that I was just going to spend the next nine days just thinking about all of my infatuations and problems obsessively. <laughs> and I got fucking beat up so badly that like three months later, I was like, I've got to do this again. <laughs> and, but it was so profound. And, and again, I had so much work to do. I, like you were saying, I had a nervous system that was fucking fried and I still was for a very long time. But what I found interesting is as I self-abused and, you know, I had a very self-abusive nature um, in terms of how I did everything. If I trained, I'd train to the point of exhaustion and total fatigue. Like it was self-abusive. Like I never did things to, although I might've wrapped them up in the perspective of doing it to help myself, as long as I could hurt myself in the process, that's how I did it. Um, and again, I, that was a realization I had later in life. And I also connected it to the Vipassana because I was like, fuck, I used to sit there my hour in the morning, my hour in the evening, and I used to have found it very difficult. But it prepared me. Mm. It, it built incredibly strong foundations that when I had those, those moments and those times where you would have those bliss for whether it be 30 seconds or an hour, but then I found Vedic. And when I found Vedic, the game fucking changed because all of a sudden I went from this whole, and this is where it gets interesting, sensational-based uh, meditation, you know, where it's very yeah. sensational-based, to all of a sudden now I was in this mantra-based meditation and then I found within six months that I was swapping and merging between the two and using them like literally like weaving them in, weaving them out, going to different places depending on what was going wow. on, you know. And During the meditation? Me, I, pardon? During the meditation? Constantly. Yeah. yeah. Right. Even wow. now waking, even uh -huh. now waking. But yeah. in, in the meditation, yeah, I've gone from, you know, just pure mantra-based meditations now to a mantra-based um, sensation where I'm in mantra and I feel that pressure in my head. And right now I'm trying to take that pressure from my head and expand it in my heart because my head is very, very, very active. Mm. And I've had massive, massive um, splitting sensations in my forehead in the last six weeks. And I'm just trying to bring it down. But I'm just finding when I merge those two together, it's, 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 quite, it's quite an experience. It really is. Wow. Powerful. That's big stuff. Yeah. I didn't realize you did all that for passion. That's amazing. Yeah, look, I, I um, I'm a big fan. I, I'm just someone like yourself who's had a a life whereby my nervous system was wound up very tight, mm -hmm. you know, uh, to the point where you know it it broke quite a few times in a range of different ways, um, and I've just spent the last, I guess you could say, twenty years, maybe twenty five, but definitely twenty years, consciously just trying to unwind that nervous, mm -hmm. that central nervous system, and learn how to. Because it's really interesting. Because what I basically did is, you know, I grew up with, I'm hypersensory. I'm on the I'm on the spectrum, so I'm 
Um, I didn't realize until, you know, uh, post-diagnosis that, you know, a normal situation for most people was a very highly stressful situation for me because every single sense in my body is actually amplified quite dramatically. My sense of smell, sense of touch, sense of hearing, sense of sight, um, temperature, everything. And so, you know, I grew up experiencing high stress as a norm, but I just thought that was normal. And I used to wonder why everyone else could be so relaxed. But this is where it gets interesting, Tom. I literally spent from my early 20s until now learning how to just regulate different systems in my body, biological, psychological, uh, physical, physiological, uh, and all the things that I did, I now see in this moment in, an, in a hindsight perspective were there by design to help me regulate all the systems so that I could ultimately be more conscious. And meditation was like, it's just like the, the one that just sits over everything. You know, as I've gone through the process of learning how to regulate my, you know, even just my, 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 my gut regulation, my, you know, my cardiovascular regulation, my um, adrenal regulation, my emotional regulation, my, and, you know, my autonomic regulation, like just learning how to regulate all those systems, but with the basis of meditation um, has been absolutely transformational for me to the, where the first point in time in my life, I actually feel like I can relax. And how did um, plant medicine add to that? Well, that's interesting. Great question. Because I, I have had, I had a 25-year, 30-year, uh, let's call it 20, 20 years, 25 years PTSD, quite serious levels of PTSD from some of the, the stuff. Um, and it was ongoing as well because I had um, a lot of stuff that happened when I was younger. But also over the period of my life, I had a very exciting life. And so as a result, there were lots of new triggers that were, you know, essentially just being laid on to the old triggers. And so I'd learned how to regulate all my systems. And so I could, even as little as 18 months ago, almost two years ago, I could have a full PTSD blown attack. So heart rate 120, body freaking out, but my mind would be literally quiet and it would, I'd be positioning it around different systems in my body to regulate, but it was fucking exhausting. Like it was exhausting. And it was the one, the one system that I found it very difficult to get past was the regulating the, the, anonymic, the autonomic system, but it was hard wiring. I'm talking heart deep, deep, deep stuff. It wasn't psychological. It was like, if anything, it was um, ancestral. It was, um, uh, it was constellation mm-hmm. stuff, right? Mm. And so I did um, two high-dose psychedelic plant medicine experiences, followed up with two high, uh, moderate dose, quite mild dose actually, in, in, in comparison, uh, MDMA talk therapy sessions. And within those two sessions, wow. totally resolved, have not, have not had not only no triggers on the table, no triggers at all, can't even find the triggers and my body is literally getting used to what it feels like to not have a a, a situation because i like stress i love stress like when corona comes out that would have been the perfect perfect excuse for me to have to be me which is awesome in a crisis but also have my body take the beating in the process Mm -hmm. whereas you know i navigated and surfed through corona you know sub probably sub 60 sub 50 beats most moments you know and again why is that irrelevant when I was skydiving, what was one of the systems that I was trying to learn how to regulate was throwing myself out of planes. And I used to, I threw myself out of planes 200 times in 12 months. And I used to strap myself to a heart rate monitor and meditate in free fall just so I could learn how to regulate my system in such extreme levels of stimulus, you know? And the reason I went and trained with the Navy SEALs and um, the Ukrainian Special Forces wasn't just to play with guns and bombs. I wanted to learn how to play, again, the two base primal fears, falling, loud noises, conquered falling still was aware loud noises were having an impact on my autonomic system and so i put myself in a situation where i was exposed 14 days to explosives and hundreds of rounds a day but i wasn't just being exposed i was i was having to go through the process of 
you know, very complex scenarios and situations where we'd go from just learning how to pull your gun out of the holster, 14 days later, I'm navigating through a kill house with a three-man team using live ammo in a hostage-style scenario. And you don't build up to that in two days. Like you go from one move to like, you know, 103 moves over a period of 14 days, but you've got guns going off, you've got flashbangs going off. And so the complexity in, the, in learning how to regulate whilst executing process was amplified like at a, at, a, at, a, at a skydiving level. And so for me, yeah, that enabled me to find a baseline so that I could then step back and relax. And now with this last little component, which is the, the PTSD, yeah, it's been, it's been revolutionary for me. It's funny you know, say that because one of the things that, um, you know, I've conquered a lot of fear in my time, <clears throat> but the one thing I just have this huge aversion to is skydiving. So I'm wondering whether there's the, that's what I should be doing. Like the, you did 200, did you regulate it? in 200. The Dude, I regulated the whole way through. Like yeah. every, every jump for me was, was a therapy session wow. and yeah. very consciously too. Like, because uh -huh. I, was, I was going through a lot of stuff at the time, building a big businesses, uh, building a big business or a couple. And every time I had an issue, I literally would take it up in the plane with me. And sometimes I was j jumping eight times a day and I'd take an issue up in the plane with me and I'd jump out and I'd meditate and I'd get down to the ground. And now I'm quite a conscious pilot, meaning every time I jump, I know there's a possibility I'm going to die. I'm not an idiot. I'm not Captain Positivity. It'll be okay. I'm very conscious that every time I put a shoot on my back and I go up and I jump, there's a probability and it's a relatively high probability there's going to be a malfunction and I'm going to have some kind of a, an, either an injury or a death scenario. And so for me, I was doing death practice every time I jumped, but it wasn't just normal death practice in terms of what am I afraid of? It's like fucking hurtling out of a plane at 14,000 feet, you know, 200, 300 Ks an hour, you know, like, ah, but you do that 200 times and it becomes normal. And yeah. you do that 200 times and you put yourself in a stressful situation. You go, fuck, that doesn't compare. Tom, I'll tell you one last story, which I think you'll enjoy. It was day number 12. I'm in Ukraine. I'm in Kiev with, um, with my weapons instructor, who's a client of mine who teaches uh, weapons handling to um, tactical um, uh, units around the world. And it's his birthday. And I take him and 11 guys. So there's 12 of us. And we all look like mercs, mercenaries. And everyone's either SAS or special forces, counterterrorism. Uh, not counterterrorism, just special forces and SAS and... Um, uh, so from Ukraine and from and from Australia and from uh, England, we walk into this beautiful restaurant, like one of the most beautiful restaurants in Kiev. It's up on a hill. It's in this castle. We walk in. We've got tactical gear on. We look like private military contractors, but they just let us in and they show us through this dining room. We sit in this dining room. And, and the funny thing was when I went there, because of obviously it was not long after a cr Crimea was annexed, um, by Russia. And so I had everyone saying to me, are you sure it's fucking safe to go? And I'm going, look, I'm going to be hanging out with the special forces. I couldn't be any safer. The day I arrived, there was a car bombing 400 meters away from my hotel, uh, which is a, a pretty historic hotel, which was the scene of the revolution in 2014. Um, and the guy who was killed was head of intelligence for special forces. And so all of a sudden I was like, oh, shit just got real. Anyway, fast forward 12 days later, we've just finished AK, AK-47 orientation. We're three days into AK-47 orientation and we go to this restaurant. We're sitting in this restaurant and I'll, I'll draw you a bit of a diagram so you can see what I'm talking about here because it's, it's fucking, it was gold. So there's a table, it's a big long table um, and there's two big doors and there's, so I don't know if you can see this, but there's, there's two doors, there's a big table up against a wall down here. So down here, there's a wall, oh, fuck. a wall. And up here, there's swinging doors 
There's a guy sitting here, SAS, SAS guy here. I'm mm -hmm. sitting here and all these mercs are around here. Anyway, we're maybe half an hour into the dinner and these doors kick open and six dudes in full military camo, balaclavas and AKs come roaring in, screaming at us. The two dudes at the head of the table, one's an SAS, one gets hooked in the head, punched in the head, pulled back off his chair. Dude stomps on his chest, plugs an AK in his face. And I stand up, I get knife handed to the throat up against the wall, AK thrown in my face. And this dude's screaming at me in Russian. So these three got these six guys deploy three aside, contain both sides of the table. And then this dude walks in with a, a video camera, video something, starts videoing the camera. Anyway, before the dude walks in with the video camera, this all goes down. I'm a back against the wall. And I remember having this smile on my face because I thought it was a fucking joke. I thought that this was a birthday like prank for the guy whose birthday was, who's the special forces trainer. And so I'm smiling. This dude's screaming at me. And then all of a sudden I look in this guy's eyes and I remember looking at his eyes going, there's death in those eyes. Yeah. And I went, shit. And then I looked around at his hand. I was like, his finger's on the trigger. His safety is off. That's a real Kalishnikov. Shit, this is a real situation. And I remember in that moment going, holy shit, I'm not scared. And I remember looking at the, I looked at the dude beside me who was being, who got muzzled in the face, knife hand. He was getting manhandled because he was trying to resist. Everyone else is compliant because everyone else is military except for this guy beside me and me. And I'm just looking around the room and I remember just going, holy shit, I can see everything. I'm, and this guy's screaming at me. And I'm just looking around as if I was, watching the scenario and then this dude walks in with this towel around his head or was a, a t-shirt around his head he's a video camera looks around and then screams something in russian and all the six guys wrap it up and run out as fast as they came in now this all goes down in about 30 seconds meanwhile when they barge in we're in the in the middle of a packed high-end restaurant in kiev so everyone's wearing like fucking bow ties and suits women and children and men are running out of the, the thing screaming and we literally as they run out we sit down, laugh, and start eating and drinking again. <laughs> Two minutes later, one of us goes, should we go outside and see what's fucking going on? <laughs> so we literally, but that's how calm everyone yeah. was in the scenario. We go outside, long story short, they had uh, four suspects of the car bombing that were found on the terrace of the restaurant, and they were bundling them into, I've got all these photos, it's great. They just put them zip ties on them, bundling into the car. But my point being that was one of the most incredible experiences of my life because it was at that point that I realized, holy shit, like when you learn how to regulate all the different systems in your body and you do it very consciously, you can literally be thrown into almost any scenario and maintain a high level of consciousness and composure if you've done the work. Yeah, yeah. And that was That's breakthrough amazing. for me. And again, I, yeah, it, it, and again, I don't- That's I all trainable, you reckon? 100%. Hmm. And I do it with my clients, Tom. I do it with my clients. And when you look at our clients right now, they're so resilient. They're wearing this whole situation so well. And the reason they are is because I've trained them this way. I train them like a military outfit. I train my team like a military outfit. And that's why my clients are responding so well during COVID. My team are responding so well during COVID because they're used to working in a high stress, high tension, high performance environment. And this is just, they're like, fuck, this is actually normal. <laughs> this, is just, <laughs> this is just anything unusual. This is just fucking Monday. Yeah, so, uh, cool. so, yeah. So do you, so, mate, you, you, your team have to jump out of planes? Is that part of the training? No, look, it's not part of the training, but I'm pretty sure a few of them wouldn't, wouldn't say no. Yeah. But we do give it away as a gift on a regular basis for oh, people cool. who, uh, who, who, who sit at least for one year in a desk. 
Good on you. But, um, so, mate, I, I would love to share more about what you do with people who are listening to this. How can people find out more about um, your your movie and your book? Where can they go to find out more? You can go to entertheportal.com really simply. So the film uh, is about to go digital very soon. Uh, we just Brilliant. got bumped out of the cinemas quite quickly because of the uh, COVID. But, um, yeah, entertheportal.com. When's the then, launch date? Um, we're talking to a number of different distributors uh, and obviously the big players like yeah, Netflix, Apples and uh, uh, yeah, right. Amazons to potentially go into those platforms. So we're just trying to weigh up. There's a couple of pathways we could take which is go onto those platforms or go down our own route um so we're just trying to explore and weigh up you know the different offers and different opportunities and you know one might sound like a great opportunity but it might not be a good opportunity so you got to really peel back the layers of all of these ones yeah. and see that you don't sort of shoot yourself in the foot for you know a 15 year period for some of these things so you got to be careful yeah yeah true that. yeah it's not That's a fantastic man <clears throat> thanks mate i'm looking forward to checking out the portal with my um with my socially responsible um friends uh, in the next in the next week or so mate listen thank you so much for your time i'm really looking forward to you moving up here to byron um Likewise. and when you do get up here please let me know because uh, i'd love to come and have a sit with you and um yeah it may it sounds like we could i would love to sit in your presence and just learn from you it so, sounds like you've got some great insights yeah we'll definitely be touching base and head up that way It'd be good fantastic tom thank you so much pleasure mate good chatting this episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know that your comments help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com, and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.